Welcome to the next in a series of Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast, brought to you by SAM Rams. Welcome to another episode of Who's Who in Academic Medicine, brought to you by SAM and Rams. My name is Arjun Prabhu. I'm a PGY2 at Mount Sinai in New York City. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Seth Truger from Northwestern University. He's an assistant professor and digital media editor at JAMA Network Open. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. So today I just wanted to talk about some of the things, amazing things that you're doing in academic medicine and what sort of brought you to that, to being able to do that, as well as some tips that you have for people that are in medical school, residency, or even early faculty members that are interested in some similar things. So in addition to running your own blog, successful blog and Twitter account with over 25,000 followers, you were previously social media editor at Annals of Emergency Medicine, and you're now currently digital media editor at JAMA Network Open. How did you develop an interest in social media, and what steps did you take to successfully integrate it into your career? Good questions. So I think I was mostly very lucky about a lot of things. I think, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of like direct great advice, like, oh, do X, Y, and Z, and then A, B, and C happen. And a lot of things that just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I finished med school in 2008, so I was a resident 2008 to 2012, and I feel like the kind of arc of my career was very similar in parallel to when um, foam and all the online discussion blogs, all that kind of meta stuff really started exploding, and I kind of got to ride that wave. It was really nice. I was, I think, a few months into internship when MCRIT started, and that's when Life in the Fast Lane started getting big, and there's just a lot of really new, high-quality blogs coming out, and there's a lot of excitement about it. I, you know, mostly just consumed stuff for a while, occasionally made comments on some websites and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the end of my third year, I was at the consensus pre-conference at SAM in 2011. It was on crowding and boarding, which I had some interest in. And I was sitting with Nick Jeans, who had been a chief when I was an intern um, and stayed on his faculty, and realized, you know, there's all these great lectures, and I want to pay attention to them, and I want to, you know, be engaged. But if I just sit here, I'm going to like fall asleep because I'm a <laughs> typical ER doc and I don't have that kind of attention span. If I play Angry Birds on my phone, I'm not going to pay attention. <laughs> so I signed up for Twitter on his iPad and started like sending out notes and just slowly started engaging, getting into that community, started taking part in conversations. Eventually, it just kind of led to things like getting invited onto podcasts as guests and really just found my voice. I did the fellowship in health policy at GW, the Department of Emergency Medicine, from 2012 to 2014. And again, a lot of that stuff, especially with the Affordable Care Act, that's when it was getting unrolled. There was a lot of conversation online, not just in physician groups, but in policy circles. Uh, there's a lot of health journalists who we forget are like roughly our age or a little bit younger mm -hmm. at that phase. And they spend a lot of time online. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of new things where nobody knew what was going on. And Basically, part of my job is an office job sitting around at a desk where there's a lot of Twitter. And mm -hmm. It was kind of interesting to find a voice and to work on kind of that communication and translation in, in a kind of new world. And then at that point, journals had started basically finding social media editors. And mostly what they did was take people who already had some sort of presence online and bring them into the journal to help figure out their digital engagement. Mm -hmm. And somebody sent me the posting for the Annals one, and I applied for it. And I was like, oh, this is actually a good job. Because mm -hmm. I was starting to realize that there were a lot of pathways in academic medicine. I knew I wanted to be in academic medicine, but I knew I didn't want to be a grant supporter researcher. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be in program leadership. I didn't want to be an ultrasound director. Or, you know, it's the, I don't know, old terrible metaphor of to carve an elephant out of a block of marble. You just keep scraping away things that aren't like an elephant. <laughs> um, I like that. Yeah. And that became a really great opportunity to kind of take the social media parts of my life and turn that into just something kind of 
traditionally recognized in academics. And I got involved with some groups doing things on basically writing about Twitter and social media for medical professionals. I got involved with a research group with Teresa Chan, Brent Toma, Michelle Lin, and some others trying to evaluate how we evaluate quality of social media products. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there was, even though you described it as you being at the right place at the right time, you also took a lot of initiative and applied for things you're interested in and said yes to a lot of opportunities that were presented to you, which even though we're not in the same exact situation as in 2008 to 2012 with some of these blogs and everything coming out, some of those, the things you mentioned can be applied to today and just taking a passion that you have and applying that passion, you know, being creative and saying yes to the opportunities that are presented to you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Thanks. I think, you know, a lot of it is, we were talking yesterday about a session about, you know, building your digital presence and somebody is talking about a podcast that they were making and they wanted to figure out, you know, how do I really get followers and get things going? And I think a lot of it is just doing the work. It's just Mm -hmm. the third episode of a podcast isn't going to be what makes it popular. It's a slow, linear slog. I remember, this is probably a little too esoteric, but a few years ago, there was a show Blacklist that came out mm-hmm. with a big actor in Hollywood, been there for a while, now doing a TV show. And I just remember having this epiphany. He's like, well, he's like going to work every day making this TV show. He's yeah. not just like signing up for a new movie. It's not like Entourage, mm-hmm. where you know, you just, you're famous, and there's a movie, and then there's money. And like, you just have to put in a lot of work all the time. And I think what's been really great, especially in academic emergency medicine, is how many opportunities there are for side projects for people to collaborate with. For, I mean, both the same thing that happened with Annals happened with me with, with how I ended up with my Jamma role where Jay Sure sent me a direct message that, hey, Jamma has this posting that sounds like a good job for you, you know, mm-hmm. and it happens to be in Chicago where my two offices are half a mile apart. It's mm-hmm. great. I take the same bus to both jobs. That's too perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like too great. And I think a lot of it is, you know, not some sort of miracle where if you work hard, things will magically happen. But the more hard work you do, the more good things you do, the more people will recognize it, the more opportunities will come up. Mm-hmm. I was really interested about the work that you're doing with JAMA Network Open. What are sort of the roles that you have in the digital media editor role? Sure. So most of what I do is essentially manage how we present the content online and engage with the audience. And I guess kind of author services are a way we frame a lot of that. So some of the things that are easy to describe are I help make the visual abstracts that we make for basically once a week for each of our releases um, where we take an article. For anybody who's not familiar, take an article that's being published and then basically try to make like a one-slide social media-friendly infographic, essentially, that has Mm -hmm. a little bit about the methodology of this study, what are some of the relevant results. Um, And it's basically a way to try to convey the information that would be in an abstract or the key points of an article kind of quickly in a way that's you know rigorous enough to represent the science, not to say, hey, look, X treatment is good or mm-hmm. this thing's bad. But mm-hmm. this study you know, had so many patients, did a little bit of methodology. Here's a little flashy thing to catch your eye and look mm-hmm. at it and get some of the, mm-hmm. the bottom line information. I also, a few months ago, me and my boss, I guess, Mike Berkowitz, who's the electronic editor for JAMA and the JAMA Network, we started doing what's essentially a video podcast. So pretty much once a week, we do what we call JNO Live, where we talk online on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook about a couple of the articles. For the last couple of weeks, our tech people have been able to set up authors to Skype in, so they can Skype in live, which is really fantastic. It's one of those things where technology is really impressive, because you don't realize how many pieces need to work to be able to record that properly. And we also have kind of like a uh, teleprompter. We actually, when we're looking at the camera, have the authors looking back at us oh, on, the, on the screen, which is really cool. So really it's useful. for people like me who don't have a lot of experience doing like 
not a TV broadcaster. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier and natural. And so those videos are fun. And then I do uh, basically a lot of things, kind of nitty gritty stuff behind the scenes about how, you know, like if you go to Amazon and you buy a garbage can, it says you might be interested in these garbage cans or these garbage bags. Or people do you buy a lot of garbage cans on Amazon? <laughs> uh, I, there was a little. I had to buy two, and one of them broke. It was a whole thing. <laughs> you know, so for especially since our journal is a multi-interest, multi-specialty. Um, Medical journal, you know, if there's a pre-hospital stroke paper, is it relevant to emergency docs? Is it relevant to pre-hospital communities? Is it relevant to vascular surgeons, to neurosurgeons, to neurologists? Mm -hmm. And trying to do that, basically figure out who gets exposed to it, how articles are linked together, that sort of thing. Some of it's really simple stuff like um, taking the author tweets that the author submit and molding them into things that I'd say um, conform to the journal standards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like you mentioned earlier, the part of your career with social media is a little bit non-traditional. It's not like a program director role or it's a little bit kind of you've created it. How has your institution viewed it? I think my institution overall is pretty happy to have I'd say, a good representative out there. I don't get like paid or rewarded for any of the social media work I do by my institution other than what the AMA pays me for. So I guess technically I have a conflict of interest that I get substantial salary support from the AMA for my role. Nobody really knows how, like, say, promotion and tenure committees deal with the social media stuff. Mm -hmm. There's certainly outliers, a uh, place like Mayo, that it's clearly incorporated into their matrix of things that count as academic productivity. There's also clearly some outliers or docs like Steve Smith or Scott Weingart or mm -hmm. Michelle Lynn who've done like absolutely outstanding work and it's clearly obvious to the people on the promotion tenure committee that that's really a value. But for a lot of places, I think the expectation is that most places either don't know the value or don't know how to value it or just simply don't value it. And I think it took me a while to realize that like for my, like when I go for promotion, it's not just docs at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. It's, you know, the biology engineering professors mm -hmm. and other people who have no idea what our world is and is very, very different. And there's a lot of people who are doing some really great work on trying to figure out how we can quantify work people are doing and say make some standards so that we can present it to promotion and tenure committees with the hope that it's at least easier for them to process it if they want to. But my main model is that I'm assuming that my PNT committee is not going to care about any social media stuff. Mm -hmm. So to figure out ways to kind of parlay my social media work into traditional productivity. So to write papers, to right. Mm -hmm. right. That's part of the reason why I work for a journal is, you know, again, I started taking all the parts of the non-elephant off the cube of marble and figuring out a path. But I had a challenge in figuring out what my path was going to be in academics. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to work for a journal has been a way where it's like, oh, this is something that P&T committees will absolutely understand right. mm -hmm. and not just, oh, like, he tweets a lot. Mm -hmm. And some of it's about <laughs> medical content. Right. It's like a, a, not quantifiable, but it's mm -hmm. something that you can point to that says, this is what I do that explains it to someone who might not follow you on Twitter or be involved in the, you know, digital medical community. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And it's got the, I'd say, at least some level of the cachet that academics in the university would understand. Mm -hmm. Speaking of your Twitter account and blog, you have a really great name that I think a lot of physicians can appreciate. Any particular story behind it or how did you come up with it? Obviously, you were in the medical Twitter community early to be able to get that at <laughs> yeah. One of the little things that's kind of always run through my career is just how much inefficient things there are in medicine and how many things, you know, and the, the nurse, you know, we get annoyed because the nurse tells us something that we don't really care about and they know that we don't care and they don't care, but there's protocols that have to be followed and mm -hmm. COIA stuff. And it's not really any individual's fault, but, you know, like, you know, the lab calls like, oh, the iron on that patient's 3.2. And you're like, all right, MD aware. <laughs> and I think that just kind of resonates with me as a kind of like, I don't know, meta awareness of... <laughs> being polite and sometimes it gets a little 
passive aggressive in certain situations that I try to avoid, of course. Uh, <laughs> and then it just kind of hit me one day. It was literally, uh, I got married third year residency, no, second year residency. And it was a destination wedding in the Caribbean. And uh, we were there for like a week before to set stuff up, which was mm-hmm. really just like a pre-honeymoon party with everybody who was there. It was fantastic. <laughs> I highly recommend it. And we were sitting around on like the deck of the pool. And I thought, I was like, wait a minute, this would be a great name for a blog. I didn't have Twitter. That was about a year before I was on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I literally like, basically like, while I was like sitting by the pool in the Dominican Republic, like getting ready to get married, not like the day I was getting married, but a couple <laughs> days before, like I went to Blogger and got that name. That's and awesome. Later when I signed up for Twitter, I was like, oh, wait, this is the same thing. It can work perfectly and be the same. Unfortunately, somebody has it on Instagram. So my Instagram oh, is md.aware. No. Okay. So, but I don't really do medical stuff on Instagram anyway. <laughs> I promise I didn't know that the story was going to be that great when I asked that question. <laughs> But everybody, you, you should follow the blog and Twitter account at MDAware. It's MDAware.org? Yeah, MDAware.org just redirects to the blogger. Mm-hmm. It's an MDAware.blogspot.com. Okay. Uh, but MDAware.org is fine. I actually don't post a lot of content on my blog. For me, I find it can be a big procrastination. And a lot mm-hmm. of the things that I feel like would be worthwhile is doing as blogs, you know, instead of spending three or four hours making a blog post, I could probably spend six or eight hours and make it something like that could go in you know, a throwaway paper or potentially into a journal. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that means I end up doing nothing with it and spend zero hours on it. <laughs> but I feel like it's one of the biggest potential problems with being on social media is that it's really easy to be a time suck and to feel like you're being productive when you're not. And right. mm-hmm. frankly, I don't do enough with my blog to make it worthwhile to spend that much time on it. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of your career that amongst many that are interesting, um, you mentioned that you did a MPH and a fellowship at GW mm-hmm. in health policy. How did you develop that interest in health policy and public health? And what made you decide to go the fellowship route? I mean, I just have always had some sort of interest in policy and a little bit in politics. I was a government major in undergrad. I was pre-med the whole time, but it was just academically interesting to me. And really, it was during residency, just kind of seeing how the problems that we had that we dealt with every day, things like dealing with a busy ED with big wait times because we have boarding inpatients who can't go upstairs, mm-hmm. that how once I started kind of pulling at that thread and investigating where that those were coming from and looking at all the great research that people have been doing on it, it was just finding that these are all coming from big policy decisions mm-hmm. and that, you know, basically there are patients, like there are long wait times in ED, not because there's, you know, people with ankle sprains and colds who don't need to be there, but basically because of the way we pay for post-acute services and procedural care over say sepsis care and that's why there's a bunch of patients waiting in the ED to go upstairs who we've already taken care of mm-hmm. and that these kind of things really these big policy decisions that we kind of make as a country really shake down into our patient care on a really very basic day-to-day level. I think that my most optimistic view of it is that there's a relatively small number of docs who are really involved in policy at serious levels and even with how few of us there are there, we still have pretty good representation and control of some of the levers. But, you know, it's you know, turning a giant ocean liner. It's really, mm-hmm. really hard stuff and can be really frustrating. Mm-hmm. It definitely seems like things are starting to change a little bit and more people are starting to get that are in medicine are realizing what you just said and are starting to get more interested in wanting to make those decisions themselves rather than outsourcing it or having people outside of medicine be in some of those decision-making roles about everything that we do as doctors in, in our health system. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's I'm technically a millennial, but probably on the cusp of the transition right between Gen X and millennial, I'd consider myself more of the Oregon Trail generation, which <laughs> if, if you haven't read that original blog post about it, it's fantastic. But I feel like 
one of the things that makes me, I think, the most optimistic about our future is looking at the current med students and residents and how much more aware they are, interested in, active in things like advocacy and policy. You know, I feel like watching the baby boomers and Gen X who make long decisions about working hard for your career, you know, the pendulum as far as swung all the way towards working hard, making money to support your family, rather, and that's you know swung back a lot to things like having a job that you feel good about what you do every day and is fulfilling, and maybe you could make X percent more money, but now you you know balance your wellness, your family time, and free time and things like that much better. I've got a bunch of close friends who are fancy corporate lawyers who work a ton harder than me, make a ton more money, don't enjoy their job at mm -hmm. all for what it is, but basically just as an instrument to pay for the other things they want. And I, they make a lot more money than me and have much nicer houses and cars, and I would not trade any of that. Mm -hmm. I think people, especially emergency medicine, there's a natural inclination of being interested in things like health policy because we take care of everybody yep. and we are the front door, we see a lot of the problems with the system. Yep, one of the classic lines in EM is uh, whatever problems there are in your community, you're going to see them in your ER. Mm -hmm. Right when I moved to DC for fellowship, I was uh, went to the Home Depot and it's somewhere in Northeast DC in a not great part of town and, and it shares a parking lot with a supermarket that is about as far away from a Whole Foods as you can get. <laughs> and we went there to just get some basic supplies and my sister-in-law is with us and she's a very fancy, very successful corporate lawyer. And my wife who's a dietitian, and at the time was working at a Medicaid clinic for um, basically patients with gestational diabetes mm -hmm. and we're in there and my sister-in-law I'm not making fun of but you know she's very well educated very <laughs> successful and she's walking around like who you know who are these people around and there's motorized wheelchairs and, <laughs> and what's going on and my wife are like these are our people you know yeah. we've got this amazing privilege where you know I'm terribly overeducated you know I get to do all the you know bi-coastal elitism stuff and mm -hmm. you know get paid very well and you know at least in the top three percent of the country or whatever it is mm -hmm. but also like I get to put on pajamas and go to work and take care <laughs> of people who live on lower rocker drive mm -hmm. Riffing off that, if you had a chance to speak, you know, to policymakers on any level, either back when you were in New York, D.C., Chicago, or Congress, or whoever you want to choose, <laughs> what would you tell them? What do you think your experiences, you can sort of paint a picture for them of what you would like to see in the healthcare system? Yeah, and that's a really tough question. I think ultimately on the big scale stuff for me, um, and this is probably going back a little bit more to the Obamacare debate and those things like death panels or government rationing and things like that, is that every system is about trade-offs and every system has some sort of rationing. Mm -hmm. And our system basically rations based on how much money you have and how much access to care you have, which more than anything else is about how much money your parents and grandparents had. Right. And that's basically, even if it's not an active choice we made, that's a passive choice that our society's made. And while if we switch to some, I don't know what the right answer is, I on healthcare systems or things like that. I have lots of questions about lots of things, but currently ours right now isn't working. And there's a great line by, uh, I'm seeing from Ezra Klein from Vox, who used to be at Washington Post, you know, and people talk about like how terrible the wait times are in Canada, you know, for say something like a hip MRI. Well, the wait times here look really good if you look at people who get hip MRIs. Right. There right. are millions of people in the US who will never be able to get a hip MRI if they needed it. And therefore our mean wait time is infinite. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Whereas in somewhere like Canada or England, you get those services just yeah. not necessarily in the time span that you would want. Well, but I would say maybe not, not necessarily in the time span that a lot of Americans who have great access now expect. Right. But even now, you know, we have so many different tiers of access to care, so many different types of coverage with so much type of, you know, from all the way from super fancy private insurance to pretty good private insurance that a lot of people have to a lot of people who are underinsured or frankly uninsured and have, you know, really terrible access. You know, ultimately the fact that somebody with really good insurance can 
can get a hip MRI they may or may not need for a you know hip replacement at some point down the line versus how many people you know wait eight hours to get emergency care for terribly important acute services. Right. Mm-hmm. For medical students or residents, you know, one of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is. Obviously, it's really interesting talking about some of the things you're doing now, but also just for people that are interested in those fields, again, it's sort of tricky because it's just dependent on their personal networks and opportunities available, but do you have any general advice for medical students or residents interested in health policy, public health, social media, et cetera? Yeah, I think overall, our kind of I'm counting my age and younger of people in medicine We've spent so much of our lives, you know, preparing and applying for and trying to do the next thing. Like, I remember in med school, I was like, all right, it's time to take the MCATs. All right, it's time to go to med school. (laughs) And there's, especially in a lot of the big academic programs, there's like, all right, what fellowship am I going to do? And I'm very glad I did my fellowship. I enjoyed my fellowship a lot. Even though I do most of my work in social media, there's still a lot of what I do in health policy, and, and it's still very worthwhile. But when I talk to med students and residents, I think for me... It's easy to get into the trap of, oh, I need to get further credentials to do something, and you don't always need that. And I think it's important to talk to a lot of mentors, reach out. Everybody in medicine loves talking about their job and what they do Mm -hmm. or their projects and things like that. So it's totally appropriate to cold email people or ask faculty to put you in touch with their colleagues or friends or things like that. Really find out, is it necessarily worthwhile to do do you need formal credentials to do something or is it something you can just figure out on your own or a mix of both? For me, the really basic model for something like a fellowship or certificate or or degree program is after residency training, of course, you know, three main steps. One is, do you actually need that sort of certificate or that sort of credentials to get the skills? Mm -hmm. Something like, say, an ultrasound fellowship that you do an ultrasound fellowship and you're going to be able to know how to do the main ultrasounds, you're going to know how to teach the ultrasounds, you're going to know how to do ultrasound QI. Second is, do you just need the merit badge? Do you need the credentials? If you want to be an ultrasound director, I don't know much about ultrasound. I'm not in the world. But my vague understanding as a mostly outsider is if you want to be an ultrasound director at a competitive hospital, you need to have an RDMS or ultrasound fellowship or some sort of credentials. You need to have that merit badge. And third is what's kind of the networking and community opportunities there. You know, Mm -hmm. is just for me, one of the biggest parts about my fellowship was meeting people in the field people who are doing great work, working with them, getting in contact with their communities of practice and other colleagues. And that's a huge important thing. So there's no yes or no to any of those questions. And they're probably all not necessarily going to be aligned. And I'm sure there are people who at this stage still don't need to do ultrasound fellowships to learn those skills and to get the credentials and figure it out. Jim Sung, who's one of the Pete's faculty, Pete's ultrasound faculty. Yeah, a new, a new professor. Congratulations, Jim. And I remember talking to him and he was like, yeah, I, I'm not an RDMS, I just became an ultrasound tech um, because <laughs> there's all these politics about who could perform ultrasounds in some hospitals. He's like, but if ultrasound techs can perform hospitals and I go to tech school and I'm an emergency doc and also an ultrasound tech, then they can't tell me I can't because I'm an ultrasound tech. Yeah, and, you know, he's, a, I'd say, more senior and accomplished than me. So the world has possibly changed a bit. But just it's certainly possible to figure out other ways to get the credentials or to do the work or get that network. Mm-hmm. So creativity in the age of self-learning. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and again, I just would really emphasize how great the network of academic emergency docs is and mm-hmm. how easy it is to talk to people and I mean when I was in fellowship I would just routinely just get in touch with people and have 20 minute conversations on the phone and you know some of them I still haven't met in person or mm-hmm. anything like that but everyone loves talking about their stuff and giving yeah. their advice like I'm doing right now. Yeah totally and that's sort of how this podcast has come about too I mean people are like you said first of all almost all very friendly in academic medicine and willing to help and 
mentor. We have some great people in emergency medicine. Yeah, that was also a um, great advice I got when I was applying for med school and residency was to get the person who's interviewing you to talk about what they do. Because when people <laughs> talk about their own stuff, they find you fascinating. <laughs> So as part of the Oregon Trail generation, do you have any advice for not dying of cholera? I think the main thing is, I said, which one's cholera? The, the, yeah, I mean, staying hydrated is really important. Um, <laughs> hydration, I mean, just the bottom line is you don't necessarily need to treat it with antibiotics, but just oral hydration. Most people don't need IV antibiotics for that kind of volume depletion. We kind of overestimate how much that does. Mm-hmm. And then people get stuck in the ED for, you know, a few hours until, you know, that, until that bag of fluid leaves. <laughs> Perfect advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. One last question. On the banner of your Twitter account, you have some Star Wars stuff. Are you a big Star Wars fan? I'm a big Star Wars fan. Okay, what do you think about the preview of the upcoming uh, Rise of Skywalker? Oh, it's tough. My, uh, we got to have a whole three more episodes just talking about my <laughs> views on Star Wars. I'm a big Star Wars fan, and then I was in high school when the special editions came out, and was like, kind of let down. Mm-hmm. And then the prequels came out, was, we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> and The Force Awakens, I thought, was a... A little careful, but very well done. And the preview for it was, I remember the second preview when it's Ray going across the desert with a down yeah. and then Luke's theme comes on. It was like, all right, they know what they're doing. But then The Last Jedi was, you know, it was, certainly wasn't as terrible as the prequels, but it was disappointing in a lot of different ways. But the preview looked pretty good. The trailer, I like the fact that, especially since they've kind of done some bait and switch before, where it's really hard to tell what's going on with Ray and the right, tie coming right. at her. It looks like it's pretty adversarial and she's right. attacking it. It also, I'm sure... There's a you know non-trivial chance that you know now they're friends and she's jumping on it to mm-hmm. jump inside the cockpit with them and fly away together and fight somebody bad. It's hard to know. The cinematography is also great. I have like no expertise in this, but I've certainly seen some tweets from smart people who are like, "This is almost exactly shot for shot, like North by Northwest." It's like the famous shot that I mostly know yeah, from the Simpsons right, reference right. Uh, from it, but where the the guys running the field and the biplanes coming <laughs> at him. Yeah. So I think there's. I'd say I have some cautious optimism. Nice. Cautious optimism. Always good. (laughs) Well, thanks again for joining us. Our guest today was Dr. Seth Truger, who's an assistant professor at Northwestern and the digital media editor at JAMA Network Open. Great. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. 